one thing that most people here in the U.S. don't think about. The last two years in China were probably some of the best years for the food and hospitality business. When China was closed inwards, there was a lot more space for everyone to get creative, to think of new ideas, and to push everything forward. Nobody was needed to wear masks within the country, and they were isolated from the rest of the world in that sense. And it was very good years for food and hospitality. Now it's a little different. You're listening to the Taste Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Rodbard. Today on the show, I catch up with one of the most interesting and entertaining voices in food, Lucas Sin. Lucas is a chef, creator, and behind some of the biggest ideas in home and restaurant cooking. So this conversation was recorded the day before Lucas left his previous home in New York City for a planned multi-year trip around Asia. We get into those details and how this Yale grad and culinary superstar stays fresh. I really think you're going to enjoy this conversation with Lucas Sin. Lucas Sin, welcome back to the Taste Podcast. Thank you, Matt. So I texted you literally like 24 hours ago, and I saw on Instagram that you were like doing some kind of going away drinks. And I'm like, yo, what up? I want to make sure we catch up. What's going on? And then you come in, and I'm like saying hi in the lobby, and you're like, I'm moving tomorrow. Yeah, tomorrow morning. I'm going to China tomorrow morning. I, well, I'm flying back to Hong Kong first. Okay. Um, eventually, I'm going to be based out of Shanghai. Okay. Uh, I'm from Hong Kong originally. Yeah. A lot of us kids, you spend a little bit of time in the U.S. for school and for work and all these things, and eventually you uh, perhaps forget that you're Chinese, um, that if you keep harping on about Chinese food, you have to do your China time. Uh, you keep talking about Asian food, you got to look into Asian cuisine because we need to remind ourselves and we need to know that it's a very much a cuisine that's alive. It's constantly changing. Food trends are constantly progressing and the cuisine is constantly being pushed forward and evolved and elevated and whatnot. So it's been three years since I've been back to Asia. So this is my opportunity to go back and why not go back for a little longer? So you're, you're making this decision not based on uh, an opportunity but more so based on you need to see what the hell's going on in China. I think so. I mean, uh, there's a lot for me to learn. Um, I was very lucky. Before the pandemic, despite having restaurants here in the U.S., I uh, told my team and the people I was working with that I would like to take a monthly sabbatical. Mm. So every month I would be able to backpack and cook through China. Usually I would pick one city or two and figure out where I would want to learn, what I would want to learn, and go out there and just try to learn it as quickly as possible before coming back. And it was a good refresher every year to like just yeah. be in China and to see how yeah. food was going. Now that I haven't been back for so long, I think I'm going to be there for an extended period of time. You're talking like years? I think a year or two. My, cool. my worry is that a lot of people go to Asia and... Uh, they don't come back because mm-hmm. it's so wonderful there. Um, my friend Eric, who runs 86 and Wen yeah. was just uh, doing a little tour of Taiwan uh, and Asia broadly. And he called me from Taiwan. He said, Lucas, don't come to Asia. <laughs> and going, what, what's going on? He's like, don't come because you're never going to want to go back. It's yeah. just too good there. Um, I love being in a, in a, in a country and a, and a, 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 a continent where... I'm just so bad at cooking there, like relative to everybody else. Like the, the Chinese food that we're making here is always going to be in some ways, right, derivative of these like the, the, this larger cuisine over in Asia. And it's just so good to be to, to go back and be able to sort of like bathe in. Yeah, everybody. I mean, you're challenging yourselves because you're saying, I mean, you've had it like um, you've had it good here. I'll say meaning 
your skill and talent has put you in a position where you're a food and wine best new chef, truly that top of the top of the heap outside of a beard. You're great at social. You're always like people are probably hitting you up like, let's do this TV show. Let's do this, blah, blah, blah. Never seems to be your motivation, just our private conversations. But clearly you've had a your skills have put you at a level here, but what you just said is you have to go to China to like be broken down in a way, right? I, I suppose so. I just, I just find like, I just find the cuisine and cooking as a way to like talk about culture. I, I just think it's so infectious, and it's I'm, at the end of the day, I'm just a food nerd. I'm just very excited to continually absorb like everything from 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 the modern techniques that are being developed to the traditions that I don't know yet. Yeah. Um, it's just a long-term education, I think. Yeah. Absolutely. It's, it's forever education. I mean, you, you can't say you stopped learning. So let's get down to the brass tacks. Like, you are, you've given up your apartment in New York. Mm-hmm. So you're, you're moving, going to Hong Kong, you're probably going to see some family, right? Yes. And then you are moving to China. So what, where are you moving and what are you going to, how are you going to move through the, the to China? I think part of it is like being like water, right? <laughs> kind of Bruce Lee's. You need to, uh, I think I'm learning to embrace the uncertainty of this travel. I, actually, I'll, I'll give you a bit of a backdrop. Before I started, before I settled, and when I was learning how to cook, I was cooking in uh, Japan. And the way I was cooking in Japan was I just had my backpack, I had my bandanas, I had a couple of band-aids and my knives, and I would just make my way through Japan on the, on, with a JR pass on the J- Japanese mm-hmm. railway system. I would go into a hostel, ask the people who ran the hostel where they liked to eat. I'd go to those places to eat, and then I would ask them the next day if I could learn how they were cooking, what they were mm-hmm. cooking. Um, I'd you know, offer that. I'd scrub all your dishes. I'll break down all the cabbage. I'll do the things you don't want to do. I just want to learn here. And that sort of like, you know, 50% of people said no to me, probably. Mm. Maybe 50, 60% of people said, no, absolutely not. Who are you? Get out of my kitchen. But the times when they've let me stay have been the formative years of like how I learned how to cook, really, mm. before I had settled inside of a restaurant. And I remember those years. I was much younger. But I also remember those years being sort of... Uh, um, years filled with sort of curiosity and wonder and you never really knew what was going to happen tomorrow let alone next week or the month after that so I think I'm going back to Hong Kong with a little bit of that mindset and in order to navigate the let's call it just like the contemporary situation of like Hong Kong and China you need to have a little bit of that mindset as you're going forward to like learn that cuisine can you do this in China then can you actually move from city to city freely and and like post up at a hostel and do the same thing. Sure. I think uh, COVID is uh, very different there. That is, I mean, that's my now. thought right yes. away. You see the headlines. Yeah. Obviously, our headlines here are very skewed. Mm-hmm. Hard to say what's accurate, mm-hmm. but it seems COVID has shut down the, yeah. the China. It is significantly more difficult now than it was last year. But yeah. we need to remind ourselves, and this is one thing that most people here in the U.S. don't think about, Last the last two years in China were probably some of the best years for the food and hospitality business. Mm-hmm. When China was closed inwards, there was a lot more space for everyone to get creative, to think of new ideas, and to push everything forward. People were spending. Nobody would, needed to wear masks within the country, and they were isolated from the rest of the world in that sense. And it was very good years for food and hospitality. Now it's a little different, right, given the lockdowns and given a lot of, like, the political and social mm-hmm. pressures. Um, so we'll just need to see how to navigate that moving forward. But on the periphery of China, you know, like Hong Kong and Taiwan are open now. Japan and Korea are open. Those are all places that not only are great places for food and for learning, but they also have a relationship with Chinese cuisine in the broader sense of the term. So you're going to visit Japan and and Korea. We talked about heading through Korea in December. I really, really miss Japan. Um, I started cooking off. I started cooking there, right? I think it's been seven years since I've been back to Japan. Um, I'd love to go to Korea. I think modern Korean cooking is the most exciting thing to me in New York City. I'd like to see what the reference 
reference points are back in Seoul, for example? Completely. It's part of our book that we work on Korea World is like discovering and trying to distill the modern Korea scene in, in New York. Korean scene in New York is wild. It, it is, I mean, I'm glad you brought it up because you have a lot of credit and you know the, the players, but I mean, it's it's lapping Los Angeles. No, no shots at Young Buns aside. You guys are great. I love Young Buns. Young Buns I just dope. had like, amazing meal No there. shots. I'm just saying what's happening in New York um, with some of the uh, smaller places uh, and like pop-ups is cr- is crazy. I, there, I think there's economics there that I don't fully understand with regards to you know how the businesses are built and how money is loaned and how um, design is done with a lot of these modern Korean restaurants. But every time anyone asks me where are the places to eat in New York now, I think modern Korean cuisine is a great snapshot of what New York stands for. Right? Absolutely. Um, let's like get into some of the what you've done in New York because this is like our exit interview. We're gonna close an exit <laughs> interview for a couple years. You'll come back, obviously, sooner. But I want to hear about Nice Day because when I had you in last year, you were just starting to get Nice Day um, off the off the ground. I loved love your food there. It's it's solid. I mean, it's some of my favorite, um, you know, Chinese fast casual cooking in, in the country. But one thing we tapped into was like the idea that you were going to be taking over some, uh, you know, Chinese American restaurants that maybe the the owners were older and retiring and there was like a business model and I loved it. I just like think that's the greatest thing to hear. Is that still in the works? Yes, absolutely. Um, since we spoke last, uh, the first proper nice day location opened in uh, April-ish in mm-hmm. Long Island. So one of the most important things about this is that a lot of people wonder why our restaurants closed um, or Nice Day, the original pop-up location uh, in the city closed. Well, we always wanted to close it. That was a pop-up. Mm-hmm. And for whatever reason, um, we stayed there a little longer than we did. We were just repurposing one of our old Junzi locations. Yeah. But once we moved out to Long Island, then that's when the real work began. We did work with uh, Zhang Laoban, Mr. Zhang, um, who had owned this, who was a Fujianese guy, mm-hmm. owned this little strip, inherited a lease, um, and has this like Chinese-American takeout place. Yeah. Um, they're not on Uber Eats or, or DoorDash or anything like that. Uh, they just had that 200-item menu, and he was operating out of there. He wanted to get out, didn't know how to get out, and we worked with him over the course of a couple months to build Nice Day in its place with the help of Mr. Zhang. What's tandem. the food like? Um, we've reduced the menu size, um, yeah. but our best sellers are still going to be chicken lo mein, general so chicken, spring rolls, egg rolls, and those classics. Mm-hmm. Um, we did add some things like cheeseburger egg rolls that some people think that Lucasin is the cheeseburger egg roll guy, and I think this is the <laughs> salvation for Chinese-American food. That's not the case at all. No. We put that dish on the menu almost as a joke in the beginning, but at least as a conversation starter, right? Like, the kids love it. It's a silly, ridiculous thing. There's almost no finesse to it. It's two items mashed together, but it is delicious. It's gluttonous. completely delicious, utterly delicious. It's like the best type of way right. cheeseburgers yeah. served. And mapo country. mac and cheese is also like yeah. you know, one of those things. But at the end of the day, the crux of the menu is still very much yeah. chicken lo mein, a chicken and broccoli and those dishes. So let me ask you about Nice Day then. Are they, are you approaching um, businesses? Is there like an inbox? Because I, I still feel like this is like such a small thing right now and it's going to get bigger. It has to get bigger. I think there's a lot to be said about the 
uh, Chinese American market and how it's moving forward. Um, I, I believe last time we also probably talked about some of the inherent weaknesses and difficulties that Chinese American food is facing today. Um, a lot of it has to be updated from the back end in terms of the supply chain, in terms of sustainability, in a large sense of the word. Um, also, very much in terms of like the people and how the labor yeah. is structured and the team and the people are structured. So I think Nice is starting to address little parts of that, starting with, as you mentioned, working with the previous generation from uh, real estate, a build out, and sort of a business mm -hmm. model perspective. Let's talk about Shy Boys Club because you and Eric C have had this kind of roving pop up. And it's really fun. I know you just did a dinner with a New Yorker. It looked cool. What's the future now that you're moving to China? Um, I The problem with working with somebody that I like so much like Eric is that we don't take ourselves seriously enough. <laughs> so Shy Boys Club has always been sort of this like amorphous floating yeah. uh, pop-up collective. We had a lot more structure before the pandemic when we were able to cook uh, every single month and come up with new ideas. Um, I'd love to see uh, Shy Boys Club take off as um, as a general idea. Maybe there's a way for us to like continually put out ideas without having to cook together. Mm -hmm. I would love to see if travel opens up a Shy Boys Club pop-up in Asia maybe in Shanghai. It'd be cool to take it international that way because, again, I don't think there's anything that Eric and I like more than being bad at cooking <laughs> in the sea of people who are so much better than us and yeah. to like absorb all of that and try to translate it as much as possible through our own lens. You mentioned it twice. I have to ask, why, so articulate, why are you so bad at cooking compared I to just, these like, My pork chop rice is not as good as the guy who's been doing it for 34 yeah. years. And it's always going to be that way. And I, part of it is also nostalgia. Maybe part of it is just, I, I don't know what it is. Um, it's I, because... We call it Chinese food here, but in, back in, over in China, we just call it food. And if there's so many people cooking it all the time, there's always going to be this. You, you're looking for, the Japanese term for it might be shokunin, right? Mm -hmm. You're looking for those people who have really dedicated their whole lives to like making this craft. Yeah, those, yeah. They're, they're masters, right? Um, at times, it's not as pretty of a story. At times, it's, this is just what you do. There's no romanticism in it. Sometimes there is. But you don't get those stories here because at the end of the day, Chinese food is really quite young in America. Mm -hmm. And what we're doing is going to feel like it might, might be sort of like cutting edge because because it's a very new cuisine. Or we found a noodle that was vacuum sealed 4,000 years ago in China, which is to say that we've been making noodles in China for 4,000 years. Yeah, yeah, I get that. Everything on since then. Imagine all of that other stuff. Chinese food probably came to, came to the U.S. in the 1850s, maybe, last 170 years. I mean, the original, years. but, you know, with, uh, I would say, like, the early 1900s is when immigration really popped. And then, of course, in And imagine those ideas. Not, like, they don't have as much time to develop. Those the techniques don't have as much time no. to be refined and so on and so forth. Um, but anyway, um, yeah. I, I want to ask you um, about Americans aren't mastering these cuisines or these dishes or these specialties because of capitalism in a way you got to like move on you got to like actually grow and scale all these terms that we hear of course there's capitalism in japan and, and china but there's a little different culture right with uh, the the mastery of a single um rice wrapper sure i guess my question is is do you believe this is the future of china and japan or do you think China and Japan are going to actually continue, it'd be more like America eventually? Hmm. I think you're right when we think about those um, masterful, uh, oftentimes mom and pop shops that serve like one single thing, right? But I will also say, and this is, I think, a really important thing that I've learned going back to China since becoming a chef, is that there is mastery and technique and scalability as well. Uh, a lot of the best meals that I've had have been in locations and restaurants, restaurants that have, you know, 20 
to 200 locations. I had an amazing fish hot pot that was cooked on a beautifully uh, patented and designed hot pot stove that was induction. Imagine a Nespresso machine, but yeah. massive, and the <laughs> capsule is just a hot pot, it's just hot pot broth, and it pumps stock into this thing, and then wow. you like open this vacuum sealed bag, and the whole fish slides in, and then you put it on a stove, you click one button, it's cooked to perfection. Like that's scalability, and there's technology involved, but that's not not mastery, right? Yeah. It is. A, it's a new sense of like innovation, and again, I think oftentimes when we think about food, yes, there's the shokunin aspect, there's the there's like tradition aspect, but we forget that future looking Chinese food and future looking Asian food more generally, can be a great source of learning also. Yeah. Point taken. I, I think um, there's no answer here, but I feel like when you are traveling and you're 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 kind of taking these notes and you're, you're absorbing, I feel like you're going to feel like you're not in America in a way, but you're going to, yeah. there's like a special sense of mastery, right? And it's like, I'm trying to like articulate, like it's honestly... Um, you can't teach it. Like, it's like about patience and we are impatient as Americans. <laughs> we just cannot, like, master something. Hey, there's a fair amount of impatience over in China. Sure. So that's why you have these amazing uh, coffee concepts that open something like 2,000 locations in a year <laughs> and so on and so forth. So I think there's impatience everywhere. But a lot of it, and specifically this is about Hong Kong, and I think Hong Kong is really important and special to me because I'm from there and there's cultural identity involved. But recently I've been very much enamored by a lot of local Hong Kong people's uh, attempt and, and efforts to preserve Hong Kong cultural identity. Mm-hmm. Some oftentimes through food, but also through the graphic design of the signage at restaurants, um, through from an anthropological lens, through families that run these restaurants. And I think there's a real. It feels like a very sincere and um, like a hardcore attempt to try to figure out what being a Hong Konger means and what. Mm-hmm. making Hong Kong food means. I would really like to participate in that community when the time is right and that time is now. Do you feel uh, right now uh, in the next 12 to 24 months, let's just like focus on America for a second. Mm-hmm. And because you're really tapped in with trend and future, sh- like the chef world in America. Like in the next 20, 12 to 24 months, do you feel like there's going to be a sea change here in America that you're, you're seeing that you're like the future wave of anything? I mean, there's uh, one of my favorite things about being in the food industry is that you always feel like you're on the precipice of something. I know, you always feel like right? something big is going to happen. <laughs> I'm not a trend predictor. I love how Korean food has developed as just like a model broadly for any sort of like in this case, or Asian, or like, I don't know if foreign is the right word, but like mm-hmm. cuisine from outside of America, right? Yeah. To see it um, to see it occupying different uh, price points, to see it occupying different types of cities all throughout the U.S. Um, I really like Yangban, for example, yeah. as occupying this sort of like diner, um, uh, grocery sort of space, but with like very, very intentional cooking versus also Atomix, right? Yeah. One of my favorite restaurants, very high end. Like it's just, it's a really wonderful New York restaurant. It so happens to be Korean. I would like to see more. Uh, I think more foreign cuisines, called like cuisines from outside of America, become established in the American sense, like Korean cuisine has in New York. That um, it just is. New York is built by immigrants. It's yeah. just filled with the fabric of this like multi-dimension, multicultural thing. I'd like to see different people occupy all different price points. What do you? Let's talk about your trip to Mexico because you were just in Mexico cooking dinner, mm-hmm. right? You had some yeah. guest chef like, yes. gigs. Um, what What did you see there in in terms of uh, inspiration from Mexico? I've always wanted to go to Mexico. Uh, I unfortunately don't speak any Spanish, so I uh, had to have a guide. And my guide in this case was uh, the guys behind this little fermentation lab called Labo Fermento in Oaxaca. Mm. And 
I had such an incredible time. Now, first of all, Labo Fermento is a type of place where they make misos and kasus and soy sauce and uh, fish sauce from local heritage ingredients. Mm. And we, for example, we were cooking and we did this dish that was made with uh, corn miso that had no beans and it. it was just corn. Um, uh, koji was inoculated with corn. The whole process was just corn. And you start to see this like really exciting uh, uh, fresh futuristic almost perspective or even like foreign perspective on uh, this cradle of new world cuisine that is Oaxaca where like corn and like basically all of masa seems to come from yeah. and everything in Oaxaca a lot of the traditions of Oaxaca is still very much traditional and it's really interesting to see how that is starting to evolve in really exciting culinary ways by absorbing outside influence when it arrives in a place like Mexico City so what is a corn miso actually like what's the flavor yeah, of it what's it's, it's sweet about? it's sweeter than regular miso cool. um, it's not as salty Right, this one is uh, ground quite coarsely, um, so you get a little bit of texture in it too. But it's almost like the back notes of corn, more so than like that sweet corn that you get like out of a can. Yeah, why there? Why is this happening in Mexico in Oaxaca? I mean, it, this is these are fundamental East Asian flavor profiles. What's that? What's going on there? I think it's a combination. And again, I am no Mexico uh, 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 professional. Uh, rather, I'm, I'm no uh, expert in, in right. the, the Mexican dining. I was just a tourist. I was happy happy to cook there and had friends who like are cooking there now but I think there's something to be said about like the economics probably like which is to say that there's supply and there's demand there's enough like influence of like new ideas plus like robust like yeah. traditional ideas that t- to back it up that are like that's a platform for innovation right and then there's also demand where there are uh, consumers and there are people who want to see this happen right so uh, we have a few more questions you're literally running out of here because you're, <laughs> you're moving tomorrow yeah uh, getting this is our plane. interview after all now um, media so are you doing any TV or any kind of um, anything that like you're excited about? I think it's really important when I'm doing media, especially like a chef like myself, who I, I really like cooking and cooking still like primarily, I think is yeah. what I enjoy the most. Um, it's important that whatever media I do makes sense and feels like an extension of the things I'm already doing. So, so far, I think I've spent a decent amount of time in studio and with some brands here in the in New York and in the US. Mm-hmm. I'm doing sort of some cooking tutorials and those are really wonderful ways for me to just explore in almost an introverted way um, these uh, techniques that I've always wanted to figure out for myself. Mm-hmm. Like, why are scrambled eggs in Hong Kong diners in Chatanting so good and why don't they bleed water once you let them That video I'm going to link to in the show notes like changed the way I thought about right. egg sandwich. Or like, and like, how does my, why does my mom uh, uh, pan sear silken tofu? Everyone says, oh, you can't pan sear silken tofu. A lot of like people treat tofu like a meat substitute, but she does it in like such a like wonderful way. What are the techniques? Is there a dredge at all? Um, You could put on a dredge, but you don't need to. I think a lot of it's just like being careful with yeah. the tofu but a lot of it's like drying it out finding the right moisture content knowing when to flip it fish knowing spatula when to trust it. Uh, depends on if you're using a non-sick pan but it's a fish that spatula rubber spatula rubber will work yeah. okay so you're doing uh, you've done a lot in studio but are you going to maybe flip over to like Bourdain style reportage because I feel I have you're no naturally... Bourdain style <laughs> well that's me speaking not you I'm kind of kidding but like reportage like you in the field would be kind of fun I'd be down with that I would love to do something like that I think um, I don't know uh when I'm going back home, I think so much of it is personal. So much of it is like about digging into that cultural identity. I don't know how ready I am to represent yeah. it to the rest of the world in, in the English language. On the other hand, if we were to do a road trip around America and I was a tourist to go to all the, you know, all the diners on uh, in the middle of America, to go to all these, like to do a diner driver, the diners dives Drive-ins and drives and, dives. and, drives and then yeah, dives. Yeah, triple D, baby. Triple D type of thing or road food. That would be 
I think that would be quite but fun. But for the Chinese audience in Chinese, <laughs> that's what I was reading when oh, you were— Oh, interesting. Like um, for I Chinese did, television? I just did it to myself because I, oh, I, I love being in situations where I don't know really—I don't quite know what's going on. Yeah. But you're trying to make sense of it through your lens. And my lens oftentimes just happens to be Chinese food. I mean, I'm, I thought this is what you were saying, but I would love to see that in like a U.S. network or a, a documentary or something. That'd be fun. We talked yeah. about road food in the past. And yeah. this leads to my final question, which I asked you a year ago, but maybe it's changed. Lucas Sin, we asked everyone on the Taste Podcast if you could write a cookbook or food culture book without the burden of budget, meaning yeah. you have all the money in the world, or the burden of time, meaning that you don't have a deadline. You could do this for five years. Yeah. You could do it for ten. Right now, what would that book be, Lucas? Did you... What did I tell you last You said time? road food. We were talking I about— I said road food. And I love that I idea. I love that idea. I have a second one. Yeah, let's I go. would love to uh, write a Hong Kong book to try to understand uh, Hong Kong cuisine. Um, I've been uh, talking and working with a lot of anthropologists and sociologists, a lot of them working on Taiwanese cuisine, for example, and trying to figure out and trace the history of when and how did people define Taiwanese cuisine as opposed to Taiwanese as just a type of Chinese cuisine, right? Like the boundaries of that cuisine. Like what are the core influences? Influences, what are the tenants? Are there mother sauces? That sort of stuff. I would love to build at least an encyclopedic-ish mm, or at least mm. a definitive knowledge of Hong Kong cooking. Not just Cantonese cooking, but Hong Kong cooking. And I think that would do a lot for me to process um, what it means to be a kid from Hong Kong who's left and since is now hoping to go back. What's a Hong Kong dish that's not like Cantonese per se, but Hong Kong? The most obvious is probably the Hong Kong diner tang dishes, like that scrambled egg yep. sandwich, uh, uh, baked pork chop over rice, macaroni and soup. But there's also our take on bakeries. I think that's really interesting. Yeah. There's also our take on dim sum and like old school dim sum in Hong Kong uh, that's not very much like uh, the dim sum that's in the rest of Canton. Lucas Sin, thank you for joining the Taste Podcast. Thank you, Matt. The Taste Podcast is hosted by me, Matt Rodbard. It's produced by Pat Stango and edited by Clayton Gumber. Theme music by Steve Rydell. Visit Taste Online at tastecooking.com and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter. Thanks for listening. <laughs>